G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. We're going to talk about the most important topic to the Christ follower. What happens after we die? A place called heaven. Heaven, as Jesus taught, was the restoration of all things here and now. Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines, pastor, apologist, and Bible teacher. Hello and welcome. My name is Bill and this is Today with Jeff Vines. And we're beginning a short series about heaven. Do you wonder about eternity? What is a perfect renewed body exactly? What will I be capable of? What will I look like? Pastor Jeff says he's been looking forward to bringing us this first message. So here he is now in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It's great to be with you this weekend. Uh, I got to tell you, it's, it's been a long time coming that I've wanted to present this message. I've done uh, Bible studies on it, and uh, I've looked at this passage for a long time. I am so excited to share this with you. So grab a Bible if you can. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 1 Corinthians 15, we're going to talk about the most important topic to the Christ follower, and that is what happens after we die, a place called heaven. But we need to get down into the details. And to get your thinking going this direction, when I was a, a kid growing up in the eastern part of Tennessee, we would often play hide and seek uh, with the neighbor's kids. So especially this one family that lived directly behind the Vines family, the Oaks family, and uh, they would come over and play hide and seek in the summer and in the winter, and we'd hide in the basement and the closets. And uh, there were three brothers and one sister. Her name was Mary Beth. She was beautiful. And you know, when you're seven, eight, nine years old, you're captivated by beauty like this. You're kind of learning how the world works and you're being introduced to females for the first time. And so we're playing hide and seek. I had lost quite a few hide and seek games in a row and I really wanted to win one, but there was one place no one went and it was in the closet of my parents. And this closet was quite interesting because, uh, you could lose, uh, your depth perception while you're in it. You, you, you didn't realize how deep it went in to the wall. So at first glance, it was kind of shallow, uh, insignificant. But the deeper you got into it, the more you realized it was a very deep, wide and dark closet. So nobody went in there because, you know, when you're young, you're terrified. But in this one occasion, I really wanted to win the hide and seek game. So I decided to take the chance and I got into the closet knowing that no one would come looking for me in there and that I would win. Ultimately, I'd be the last one found. I got into the closet and I went into the closet as deep as I could and I sat down only to sit on the lap of somebody else that totally frightened me until I discovered it was Mary Beth. And at that point, suddenly the darkness of the closet didn't terrify me very much. I was more glad that Mary Beth was there and I was with her than I was afraid of the darkness. And I start that way because... The Bible makes some interesting comments about darkness. In fact, the Bible tells us 
We celebrate Good Friday because it's the, it's the time when Jesus died for our sins. We celebrate Easter because it's the time that Jesus rose from the dead. But most Protestants skip right over what is called Dark Saturday, Holy Saturday. And it's the time when somewhere along the way you begin to realize that there will be a darkness over you. You won't have understanding. You'll be uh, confused. You don't know what's coming next. And it's in that darkness, the Bible tells us, where we meet God. In fact, Psalm 18 envisions the presence of God as shrouded by darkness. We read in verse 11, he made darkness his secret place. Isaiah speaks of a God who will bring his people treasures of darkness. Now, how can darkness be a treasure? Because it's where we find God. Even the psalmist says, behold, if I make my bed in Sheol or the place of ultimate darkness, there you will be also. So darkness in the Bible is the place where we meet God. And we discover something, that that which we've been afraid of all of our lives is owned by God. That when we sit down in the most dark places of our lives, we'll find that we are seated on his lap, that he's there, that he's gone before us to protect us, to make sure that it is safe. But what I want to talk about, what we're going to talk about is what's beyond the darkness. What, what happens when the resurrection comes on Easter Sunday? And what happens to us in our resurrection? So I want to talk about this place we've named a heaven. What is it like and what will we be like? And I want to do it from an objective point of view. What I mean by that is usually when you talk to people about heaven, they'll give you their opinions. And if you were to line a hundred people up and ask them, what is heaven like? They're all going to have different opinions. There will be some similarities, but there will be great differences and it will be based on their feelings and emotions about what they've been taught about heaven or what they feel heaven should be like or what they sense that they would want heaven to be like. And 100% of the time, however they describe heaven, they're always going. So I want to move away from the subjective point of view of heaven and talk about an objective view. What is heaven truly like? And you say, well, how can we know that? We can only know that if someone's already been there and come back to tell the rest of us what it's like. And that's why the, the Christian faith or worldview is unique to all of the worldviews because only the Christian worldview has a savior that has gone into the heavens and come back to tell us what it's going to be like. So that's what I want to look at with a couple of quid pro quos here. Number one, if God exists, you have to admit heaven is no problem. I mean, the God who flung the stars into the sky, the constellations, the depths of the ocean waters would have no trouble creating heaven. So if you have a problem with a belief in heaven, you have a problem with a belief in God. Second, anytime the Bible talks about heaven or any other topic for that matter, we're not told the specifics because we're going to come back later and be tested on it. We're told about any theme in the scripture in order that we might change the direction of our lives and live life according to that truth. So I've been talking about this book. Now stay with me. We're setting the stage here. The Rise of Christianity by Rodney Stark. He asked the question, how is it that Christianity grew so fast within the first 300 years? How does it go from 4% of the population to 50% of the population within 300 years? And believe it or not, Rodney Stark, who writes this from an objective point of view, so he's not a Christ follower. He has no ax to grind. He's just trying to simply look at history objectively. And he says one of the reasons is because of three pandemics that came across the Greco-Roman world and the Christian response to it. Isn't that interesting? Let me read to you a couple of quotes from the Bishop of Carthage, a guy by the name of Cyprian. So in the year 251, 
he wrote these words about the Christians in the middle of pandemics. Now remember, we're talking about a pandemic that was taking 35,000 lives a day in a population, a populated world of probably somewhere around 1.6 million. So a lot of people are dying. A lot of people are dying fast. Here's what Cyprian writes. He says, how suitable, how necessary it is that this plague and pestilence, which seems horrible and deadly, searches out the justice of each and every one of us and examines the minds of the human race, whether we will care for the sick, whether relatives dutifully love their kinsmen as they should, whether masters show compassion, whether physicians do not desert the afflicted. Here's what he's saying. What you believe about what happens next is greatly going to impact the way you live in the here and now. And that worldview will be reflected in pandemics. And he said, because the Christians truly believed in the world that was to come, it gave them an incredible freedom to live without fear in the world that is. In fact, Stark makes an interesting comment. He says that it took more courage for the pagan. Now, when he says pagan, he's not, uh, he's not using this term in a derogatory form. He's simply stating the present worldview, the pagan worldview where there is no God and there is no afterlife. He says, it would have taken more courage for the pagan to stay in Rome and help those during the pandemic than it would for the Christians to stay. The reason it would have taken more courage for them is because if they died and got the illness, there's nothing after. But for the Christ followers, they assumed that this world was temporary and the one to come would be far greater. Now, he goes on to say, he says, our brethren, this is uh, Cyprian writing about the Christian, uh, the followers of Jesus, the Christ movement. He says, our brethren who have been freed from the world by the summons of the Lord, he's talking about through the pandemic, should not be mourned since we know that they are not lost, but sent before, that in departing they lead the way, that as travelers, as voyagers are wont to be, they shall be longed for, not lamented, and that no occasion should be given to pagans to censure us deservedly and justly on the ground that we grieve for those we say who are living. He says, Christians are constantly trying to make the world better because they know this is not the finality so they are, they are willing to take great risks to show compassion because if they lose their life in this world, they know the next one is coming. Now, the question is, what is it that they believed about heaven? What is it that they believe so strongly that enabled them to live life this way? And we said in the past that the first thing we got to get our head around is that heaven was not some eerie, fiery place. It wasn't consolation up there. But heaven, as Jesus taught, was the restoration of all things here and now. So you think about how much good there is on planet Earth. Think about how much good there is in the world. Uh, I think of a few of my favorite places that I often mention, Victoria Falls on the border of Zambia and Zimbabwe, Africa. It's a beautiful place. It's called Musio Tunio, the smoke that thunders because the waters rush down off the Zambezi into the riverbed below and then spring up as if there's a, a rainforest. Well, it's beautiful, but it can also kill you because people do lose their lives trying to get a little bit too close to nature. There are hippos and crocs down below and people like to, to go on white water rafting trips and sometimes they don't end up too well. I think of my favorite place in New Zealand off the west coast of Auckland called Muirwai Beach. Again, a beautiful place, but there's a famous or infamous rock 
where people, tourists from all over the world will come and fish and they die every year, even though there are signs posted. If you're not uh, an advanced uh, fisherman, don't try this because if you go out on the rocks, the Tasman Sea is wild, untamed, and it can rush in at any moment and it does so every year. It'll wash you out to sea and there's no recovery. So there's beauty in the world, the mountains, the valleys, the deserts. There's so much beauty in the world, but it also comes with hazards and it can kill you. Now, in their mind, God had created so much beauty that the, the valleys, the mountains, the Murawai beaches, the Victoria Falls, but it's been tainted by sin. And because it's been tainted by sin, the creation does not work in harmony with the creature. And because of that, there's a certain level of fear that we live with. In their minds, because Jesus had taught this, the Bible teaches that God is not going to replace this heaven and earth. He's not going to replace it. He's going to redeem it. He's going to restore it to its original order so that we would be able to cooperate in full harmony with creation and creation with us. So questions then would come in heaven when we get there. What will we be like? What will my body be like? Will I be thinner? Will I be better looking? All are valid questions. I'm sure my, my wife Robin would say, will my husband be more tolerable in heaven? And I would ask, will I always be wrong in heaven too? And so there are questions we ask, and there's a level of uncertainty, of course, because our knowledge is finite, but it doesn't mean that we cannot be certain about some things that the Bible reveals to us. So let's go to the objective word, and let's discover some truths. 1 Corinthians 15, let me read, starting with verse 35. Someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or something else. But God gives it a body as he is determined and to each kind of seed, he gives it its own body. So the Bible begins with three important statements. Number one, if you say, I don't believe in the resurrection because I don't understand it, then the Bible says, then you better not believe in basic environmental science because you don't understand how a seed goes into the ground, dies and decomposes and springs forth new life. You know that it has been, happens, but you don't have an exhaustive understanding of it. How is it that a little apple seed can go into the ground, die, decompose and spring forth into this beautiful apple tree? How is that possible? That it happens, you know, but you don't know all the details of how it happens. In Africa, there's a famous tree called the baobab tree. It looks like that God planted it upside down because it looks like the roots are on top and the flowery uh, images are underneath the ground. But in fact, this is just the way a baobab tree is made. It's a huge tree, a powerful, overwhelming tree. And the little seed that you plant that turns into this tree is unfathomable. Again, we know that it happens, but we don't know how. So the first thing we're told in the scripture, if you don't believe in the resurrection because you don't understand it completely, you don't even understand how a seed goes into the ground, dies, decomposes, and gives us beautiful fruit trees. Two, there's a tremendous difference between the seed that is planted and the final product. Uh, so an apple seed is so small, but the beautiful tree it blossoms into is very different. But there's a connection between the seed and the apple tree. You don't plant a, an apple seed and get an orange tree. It doesn't happen like that. So there's a connection. And notice it is a bodily, fleshly connection. The seed is fleshly. The tree, the fruit is fleshly. So we're talking about a body, not a spirit here. And third, the latter is always far more glorious than the former. 
That should be good news to all of us. So the seed is beautiful, but it's nowhere near as glorious as the apple or the apple tree. And the Bible says, so it will be in the resurrection. And I know if you're like me, you know, I, hallelujah, I'm tired of this tent. This tent gets old. I want a refund on this tent. In fact, I don't want a tent at all. I want a house, a condominium, a palatial home in a city where that kind of body not only is not hidden, but should not be hidden. So the Bible teaches us in verse 35 that the body that will be will be far more glorious than the one we have now, but there will be a connection between the seed and the ultimate production. What you sow, the Bible says, does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps a weed or something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined, and to each kind of seed, he gives its own body. Now, he goes on to say in the next verse, 39, not all flesh is the same. People have one kind of flesh, animals have another, birds another, and fish another. What's he saying? The biological world indicates that flesh of men is totally different from the flesh of beasts and birds and fish. So all flesh on earth is not even the same. It's flesh, but there are variations within variations. You'll remember when you were in school, your teacher told you that amino acids are the building blocks of life. And these biological codes are binding. So the amino acids that God has put into place in flesh keeps flesh distinct. What does that mean? It means no matter how, how much lamb you eat, you're not going to grow wool. Uh, no matter how much cow you eat, you're not going to grow horns. No matter how much chicken you eat, you're not going to grow wings and start clucking. Thank God, because I've eaten enough Chick-fil-A in my life. I should be a chicken by now. So you may look like your dog, but you're always going to be different from your dog. And the point is, and I know there are some, some problems with this, but overall, generally speaking, we will be given a body, not, we're not spirits flying around with harps and angel wings. We will be given a new body that's connected with the body that we had here that will be far more glorious and will be conducive to life in the new heaven and the new earth. In other words, I'll still be me, you'll still be you, and I will know you as you, and you will know me as me. So the Bible teaches us that there are fleshly bodies on earth, and they are distinct. The same is true in the heavens. You've got the sun, the moon, the stars, but the stars differ from star, and star differs from planets like Venus and Mars. Venus and Mars, still planets, but they differ from one another. Here's the bottom line of what the Bible teaches. We're going to have new bodies in heaven, not spirits floating around. We're going to have new bodies that are connected to the body that we had on planet earth. The body that we'll have in heaven will be far more glorious than this one, thank God. We will all have the same type of body in heaven, in the new heaven and the new earth, the restoration of all things here, but we will still have distinctions, just as there are distinctions between star and star, between human and human, depending on what race. And our human personality will forever be preserved with all its distinction and uniqueness and absolute and eternal perfection. You say, wait a minute, did I just hear you say we will maintain our personalities? Yes, there will still be distinctions. We are who we are, only they will be purified. We will be holy. So when somebody says to me, you mean my husband is still going to be a grouch in heaven? And the answer to that question is, well, no, it means that you're not going to give him a reason to be grouchy. Hold on. Equal opportunity here. You mean that my wife is going to stop nagging me in heaven? No, I'm, it means that you're going to stop doing things that force her to nag you. In reality, who knows? There's so much uncertainty, but there are some things about which we can be certain. 
that no eye has seen nor ear has heard all the good things God has prepared, that we're going to have a new body and there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. Again, somebody will say, well, where is heaven? And my answer is always the same. You're sitting on it. God is not going to do something totally new and other, but he's going to do something that is renewed and refurbished. That's the language of the Bible. He's going to redeem and restore here, right here, right now, the redemption of our bodies and of planet earth. So that someone has said the graveyards of men become the seed plots of the resurrection and the cemeteries become through heavenly dew, the resurrection fields of the promised perfection. Okay, just quickly. All right, Jeff, new body, new heaven, new earth. My body's going to be different, but related to the seed originally. My personality, it's going to be connected. People are still going to know me as me, and I'm going to know you as you. And there's going to be a great reunion because when I see you, I'll know you're you. And those we've lost, our loved ones, we will be reconnected with so that heaven is the greatest reunion known to mankind, and it will last for eternity. But still, Jeff, you haven't answered the question of what we will be like. All right, we have new bodies, but what will, we, what will those bodies be like? This is where it's just totally fascinating. Now, let me take a breath here, and you take a breath. And let me finish this by describing what those bodies will be like according to an objective point of reference. Let me read it to you. The Bible says, The body is sown in corruption, but it is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a life-giving or a living being. The last Adam, rather, became a life-giving spirit. So there are four attributes of the new body. Number one, the new body we will be given will be incorruptible. Again, this is the seed analogy. It goes in one way and comes out connected to the former, but totally different than the former. Let's take a look at what the Bible says here. This word corruption, this word thora, is not the word for sin, but it's the word for taintedness. So the Bible tells us right now, the bodies that we have have been tainted. There's goodness to it, but it's been tainted. It is not able to achieve its original design or purpose. Now, the reason I keep using that word is because that's the word that is used in Romans 8. Here's what we read. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. So Paul gives creation, the Bible gives creation personification. In the same way that you and I cry out, we know that something's not quite right. The Bible teaches the created order does the same. The creation knows that something is not quite right. And here's what's not right. Originally, the created order and the creature were supposed to work together in harmony. So I was supposed to be able to enjoy nature and the oceans and Victoria Falls and Mirawai Beach and this planet in a way where the created order would work in total harmony and there would be a complete enjoyment and joy and satisfaction through creation that I would enjoy creation without fear, that there'd be no barrier between me and God, and I would enjoy life without the fear of death. But the Bible teaches that sin came into the world, and again, sin is vehemently denied and yet empirically verifiable. We are tainted by this. And so this cancer has come into our lives and has impacted the original order of things. 
So the created order no longer cooperates with us. It's tainted like we're tainted. Tainted is a word that means metaotis. It's a word that means we can no longer achieve our original design or purpose. We're flawed now. But the Bible says, rejoice because we are going to be raised in incorruption. We will be able to do in this new body what we were originally designed to do. And the created order will be able to achieve its original design and purpose, which means there will be worship and communion with God. We will flourish in harmony with creation. We will enjoy life without the prospect of death. You've been listening to Today with Jeff Vines. Thanks for joining us. Next time, we'll bring you the rest of this message from Pastor Jeff. This picture is a great test for you to ask the question, am I really in the kingdom of God? Because the Bible makes a last and final statement about our bodies. And it says, it will be sown a natural body and raised a spiritual body. You can listen to more messages like this. Just search for Today with Jeff Vines wherever you get your podcasts. You make me Today. 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 Today with Jeff Vines. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.